Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are trying to, in this series, give you the very best when it comes to the topics. We've identified some, what we would consider core issues when it comes to relationships. And one of them is dealing with finances in a relationship. And uh, I've asked uh, somebody who has that experience in ministry and personally, um, our speaker today was um, an entrepreneur in the construction industry. He left that 28 years ago, got involved in ministry, pastored a large megachurch in Southern California, but over the last several years has been mentoring Christian leaders and those in the marketplace um, regarding purpose and what to do with their lives. He serves on 14 boards, including three church boards, including this church board, has been a good friend to me and a mentor of sorts. And uh, I just know him as Bob Shank. So please welcome Bob as he comes and shares. Good morning. Whoa, it's a great morning. Say, we are moving into enemy territory this morning. We're uh, in a minefield that we can get through, but we've got to dial in on uh, reconnaissance from heaven because the enemy is trying to uh, keep us captive in a stronghold that has to do with our money. I know money never comes up in life. It's something you can avoid dealing with, never have to think about it, worry about it, mess with it, right? Okay, thank you. Um, Boy, uh, I'm just going to ask you to join me in prayer as we ask God to uh, give us His wisdom this morning on a subject that is close to our lives. Father, we are living in uh, occupied territory. The enemy of heaven, the God of this world, has blinded the eyes of people and has... uh, counterfeited reality and pretended that he could be trusted when in fact he's out to destroy. God, I pray that we would re-examine our thinking about a subject that you are very informed and communicative toward. You want your truth to be the basis upon which we plan and live our lives. And so bring us through this conversation this morning with some new discoveries that will enrich our life experience And bring us into a place where we are relating to you in new and fresh and positive ways that we were not when we came. All of that's possible because we're going to be centering our thoughts on your truth and listening to the voice of your Holy Spirit. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One of the toughest things about a uh, weekend message is coming up with a name for it. Um, I've come up with a name for this. I'm calling it Partners for Life. And it's a little spin because it's a two-sided coin. For life could mean two things, and I mean both. One says it's all the way from here to heaven. In fact, anybody married here today? Uh, There's a line we used the day we got married, till death do us part. And then um, about a year later, you're trying to kill each other. But (laughs) till death do us part says for life. But I want to flip that coin and say for life, not just on a quantitative, but a qualitative scale. Because I want to figure out how to have the life that is truly life, as the scriptures would call it, between here and heaven. 
You too? Boy, that's where we're going today. And we want to think about our partners in this conversation. Now, partnerships, uh, technically, it's an arrangement wherein the parties agree to cooperate to advance their mutual interests. Everybody in the partnership stands to gain when the partnership works well. And that's true in marriage. But I want you to know that your marriage is not a twosome, it's a threesome. God's involved. In fact, uh, your involvement with the Lord Jesus personally, you bring into the marriage relationship. And once two come together, you're now in what God planned from the beginning. Second Corinthians 6 verse 14 to 16 says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. So this morning, though this is a series on marriage, it's a series for all of us. Why? Because all of us have or can have a partnership relationship with God. And if we're in marriage as adults, we're in a relationship that involves another person but involves God as actively and powerfully as it does the other person. I have an old friend, Gary Smalley, was 25 years ago a very well-known name in the Christian circles for uh, marriage-related books and talks. Uh, Gary had a great way of making his mark on uh, marriage by helping couples work through three interesting questions. He would coach husbands and wives to look at one another and ask three questions. Here was the first one. Scale of one to ten, where would you like your marriage to land? Now, what do you think the answer for most people is? Oh, man, I really want to get married and have a six. <laughs> no, what, where, where do you want your marriage to be? Ten. Hit the second question, follow up. As you look your partner in the eye and ask the question, same scale, where would you place our marriage today? He said it was always fun in a group setting to watch people do that because he said... Husbands always rate their marriage about three points higher than their wives do. Uh, Not that we're optimists, we're just clueless. But the third question was the real um, grabber. If we were to move the marriage from where it is to where you want it to be, what would I need to do? That's taking personal responsibility. But what a great set of questions to uh, pose to your marriage partner if you uh, believe that would be of value. Try it today. Look your partner in the eye and ask, uh, where would you rate our marriage today, 1 to 10? And what would I need to do to take it from there to a 10? Now, having done that with your human partner, how curious is it to ask the same questions of God in heaven? Now, let me just tell you already, I know where God wants his relationship with you to be. No, God would say, oh, maybe a five. <laughs> Ten! Well, man, the question asked of God, God, where would you place our relationship today? If you overrate it, the Holy Spirit in you will give you spiritual heartburn. So you want to be a little honest about it. But the great follow-up question, and he doesn't want it to be a mysterious answer. For it to move from where it is to where you want it to be, what would I need to do? That's what we're going to talk about in the next 30 minutes. Boy, it's been a tough five years, hasn't it? Did anybody vote for the Great Recession? It started in the fourth quarter of 2007. Here we are 20 quarters later. I don't know if you were old enough uh, or um, uh, conscious enough to remember five years ago, but 
Five years ago, the economy was smoking about 80 miles an hour in the fast lane. And all of a sudden, we blew a gasket, started smoking, we ground to a stop. And we've been over in the weeds for the last five years. And we're getting ready to figure out who we're going to elect to fix the engine and get us back on the road again. Have you seen the movie Dumb and Dumber? You know, here, here's, the, here's the truth of the matter. I'm affected by, but I'm choosing not to fully participate in the culture and the economy. And the only way you can do that is to choose to live in God's economy as instead. What are you doing to fix your economy? The big question for the candidates, what are you going to do to fix the national economy? Truth of the matter is, in the next 30 minutes, we're going to get some tips from God that are absolutely reliable uh, regarding the question how to fix the economy you live in, the space where God wants to be proven faithful and powerful in your life. Now, here's a simple principle, so principle that one of the first memory verses you ever learned, you always recited with your hand over your heart, and here's a verse from it. It says, one nation under God. Truth of the matter is, we're all under God individually, collectively as a nation. But I want to submit to you this morning that we're not all under God at the same place. Because today you are either under God's blessing or you are under his curse. Now, a lot of us would like to claim a third territory. That you're not in the blessing place, but you're not in the curse place. You're just sort of in sort of the middle ground. Well, God has no middle ground. There are only two zip codes in his world. Under his blessing or under his curse. What does it mean to be under the curse of God? Uh, I've run 23 marathons. I live at sea level and for a long time we had a second home in the Colorado Rockies at 8,000 feet. Is there any difference running at sea level and running at 8,000 feet? You can't tell by looking at it, but there's a little thing that you won't think about until you don't have it. It's called oxygen, not optional. You know, it's interesting, the blessing of God is spiritual oxygen. When you have it, you take it for granted. You don't think about it until you get to a place where you don't have it. There's nothing wrong with the Rocky Mountains, um, except they don't have any oxygen there. And friends, it's amazing. You can live without God's blessing for so long that you begin to think it's normal. Do you really want that? Two passages we're going to look at this morning. One of them describes the bias of the blessed. The other unpacks the course of the cursed. And the first is Psalm 1. We're going to answer the question, how do blessed people live? Israel had a songbook because they didn't have digital projection yet. Okay, I'm... Look, Letterman's not hired me to do one-liners. I do my best, okay? I don't have a writer. Uh, The truth is, whenever Israel prepared to worship and prepared to sing, Psalm 1 was staring at them as the introduction to their worship. Why? God wanted to start with the picture of what He wanted reproduced in the people that were worshiping Him. God wants everyone to be blessed. Do you believe that? It's not like the lottery where there's one winner and most everybody losers. 
God wanted everybody to win in the blessedness category. And he wants us to know what that looks like. And so short, concise, but powerful, Psalm 1 lays it out. Reads like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Do you highlight in your Bible? Do you underline? Do you write in your Bible? Some of you are trying to keep it new condition so that if this faith thing doesn't work out, you can return your Bible. Well, uh, I I suggest that you go ahead and use it because we won't take it back. Uh, Highlight this. God says, if you're blessed, here's the marker. Here's how you spot a blessed person. Whatever he does prospers. Let me verbally highlight that for your cognizant um, memory of the day. My friends who are pastors in black churches use this device frequently to really drill home the point. I want you to repeat with me what the word of God says. Whatever he does prospers. Out loud, come on. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, the psalmist is not saying, well, you know what? When the Dow's above 14,000 and when unemployment drops below 6% and when the prime rate is above 4, but when the conditions are right, God can really bring his people into a good place. He doesn't say that. His promises are good no matter what the conditions surrounding us might be. And what's the test for the blessed? God doesn't mince words. He says, whatever he does prospers. Now, I've got to push the pause button for just a moment and make sure that we understand what God's saying here. Because as soon as I say prospers, we live at a generational moment when our mind races to this notion of the prosperity gospel. Have you heard that term before? Prosperity gospel. It came to life with Christian television. Prosperity gospel is neither prosperity nor gospel. It's this strange amalgam advanced by people who say, if you slip a check made out to them for $1,000 and send it to a post office box in Oklahoma, that you're holding God hostage and he has to send you 10000 back. And when you get the check back, that you can use it as a down payment on the car you can't afford. And they call that prosperity. God doesn't. Our culture's definition of prosperity is kind of two-sided. Our culture says you're prosperous if you spend more as a consumer and then as you hoard more as a uh, as an owner. If you can do those two things, you're prosperous. It's what you consume and what you accumulate. That's your measure of prosperity. Not so with God. God's definition of prosperity is so much better than that. He says to be blessed and prosperous means not that you have consumed and uh, and uh, and accumulated more. God says your prosperity is measured in your generosity. 
It's what you give that measures your true prosperity from God's perspective. How do we get there according to Psalm 1? Let me summarize a brief text. There are two things he says to do. Number one, stop living the wrong way, like the wicked sinners who mock God. And second, understand and live the right way in agreement with God's law. The notion of the scriptures is that there are two kinds of people, righteous people and unrighteous people. And we hear that, and at church it's acceptable conversation. In fact, if we interviewed people on the way in the door this morning and said, "Uh, would you like to become more righteous? We'd say, well, of course. Why do you think I got up this early on Sunday morning? Uh, Why do you think I'm here? Of course I want to be more righteous. But if someone asked you on Wednesday at work or at school or in the neighborhood, do you want to be more righteous? We'd probably say, well, kind of depends on what you mean by that. Why? Because we're a little testy about whether or not righteous is a good thing when you're with real people. Well, let me strip the Sunday school language away just a little bit and make sure that we understand what God's saying. The difference between righteous and unrighteous is the difference between right and wrong. The person who knows how to live in the right way and the person who lives in the wrong way. And God wants us to live in the right way because... Our experience in life will be enhanced and bettered the more we live in the right way. That's what it means to be righteous. So the offer of Psalm 1 is, wouldn't you love to live the right way and experience the blessing of God? Isn't that a good idea? And our answer would be, absolutely. But you know who doesn't want us there? The evil one. Why in the world would he be so intent on keeping us from being righteous. Here's why. God says, when you live in the right way, I'll bless you. And when I bless you, you'll be truly prosperous. Why are you willing to be generous? Because you know there's more to give than you've got. And as you give, God gives you more to give. Not more to consume, not more to accumulate, but more to give. And when that happens, the world watches and says, Hey, what's different about you? How do I get a life like yours? And God says, that's what I was after. A people whose blessedness makes them attractive to people who long to be blessed but don't know the God who's able to do that. You see, the evil one wants us distracted and diverted from God's desire for right living. These last words from God um, are going to be worth looking at because for the next 600 years, the people of God were uh, making their way down this path and the further they went, the more desperate their lives became. How did they become desperate? The Psalm 1 was written a thousand years before Christ. And those 600 years, the people of God moved further and further and further from the right living that God expected of them. And the further they got, the more distant their blessing became. Until finally, at the conclusion of the Old Testament period, they were a people experiencing dire hardship and difficult circumstances. And they had come to believe that that's just the way life was. The last book of the Old Testament, um, the great Mexican prophet Malachi. Um, Just putting a little southwestern flavor in it. Boy, Malachi chapter 3, join me there. It's a familiar text that we don't know enough about. God speaks into the tragedy of where the Jewish people found themselves 
the old bumper stickers that said God's chosen people were peeling off their chariots. They hadn't bought new ones because their lives looked anything but blessed. And so God speaks up. In my notes, these words are in red. You say, wait a minute, Jesus didn't say that. Well, you bought one of those expensive Bibles with the words of Jesus in red. Uh, On the cover, it should have said the words of God in black. Because they're just as authoritative and just as powerful. And so when Malachi speaks on behalf of the God of heaven, he speaks with the authority of the Almighty. And beginning in verse 6, let me read the quote that Malachi offers as spoken by God. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Stop a moment. God's a partner in your marriage. Or if you're single, God is like a marriage partner, but he's in heaven, but wants to be intimately involved in your life here. Have you ever had friends who were married but separated? I found in our life experience that um, too many times than we'd like to admit, we've had friends who've gone through that. Sherry and I have been married 42 years. I married when I was six. Um, 42 years later, here we are. Let me just tell you something. God says, I'll never divorce you, but if you're ever unfaithful, we'll be separated. He's telling these people that he's been separated from them. They have not been cohabiting. They've not been living together. And when they ask the question, what went wrong? God says you were unfaithful. How important is faithfulness in a marriage? Friends, I'll just tell you that faithfulness to the big one, the big A, adultery is absolutely critical. But I've lived long enough with my wife to know That while that's important, it's not the only thing that's important. Every marriage participant establishes expectations of their partners. And when they're not met, you can be separated, though living under the same roof. Have you ever felt that tension? Have you ever known friends who did? No one would want want a cop to it themselves. But, boy, I know what it is to have the cold shoulder, to have the quiet voice across the table. To know that something's not right, and I always know that it's because of something I did or did not do. Ever been there, guys? See, men will be honest at a men's retreat, but at church, and they're not moving. God's speaking to his people, the Jews, and says, we've been separated for some time now. And here's what God says, return to me and I'll return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? God answers, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. They knew what he was talking about. We don't because we don't come from that religious tradition. Let me just make sure we know what he's saying. Tithes and offerings. Here was God's expression of expectation. For all the money that he would bring into their lives, his expectation was the first 10% of the gross would directly go to him, 10% directly to God. That's what the word tithe means, 10%. 
Aren't you glad that God didn't set it at 13.5%? Something that was impossible to calculate? God says the, the tithe belongs to God. And then the next 90%, he, in, he gives to us to spend on our cost of living. But here's God's promise. When he gets his portion first, um, he makes practical things work better than they could have ever worked otherwise. And the 90 cents that you have left from the dollar, you get more done with it than you could have ever gotten done with the dollar if you'd taken it all in the first place. And you have money left over afterwards. What do you do with the money that's left over afterwards? Increase their spending? No, God said you now can increase your generosity. And that's where the offerings came from. The tithes at the front end, the offerings from the back end. And God said, when you're doing both, we're in a good relationship. When you're doing neither, you're a thief. It's in your tithes and your offerings that you're not doing the right thing. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Is God subject to overstatement and embellishment? Or does he speak truth? He calls them thieves because the tithe and the offering had not been brought. But he isn't condemning them with no solution in sight. He continues, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. Again, if you highlight that statement warrants the highlight. Why? It's the only time in 66 books that God invites us to test him. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You see, they were God's people, but they were missing his blessing. And if you're missing his blessing, you are under his curse. They, like we, are subject to personal experience with God that is progressive. Let me tell you where we all started. Every human being is born into a human family where their spiritual death is the legacy that we inherited from Adam and Eve. As Ephesians 2.1 puts it, you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins. Step one in your journey with God is hopelessness. You have no chance of heaven in the state in which every human being exists apart from Christ. Do we agree about that? The second step in this journey was the place of surrender. What is that? You finally give up trying to solve the problem on your own. And you accept the solution that God has offered through his son, Jesus. The God man stepped into the line of fire for us and took the penalty of sin on himself. He died the payment of sin, the lamb of God on the cross of Calvary. And three days later came to life out of the grave under his own power, demonstrating the power to forgive sin and to give life. And when you surrendered to that... The magnificence of God's grace was now yours because your salvation paid for by the works of Jesus for you, not by your works, but by his works. 
allowed you to become a son or daughter of the Most High God. Is that worthy of a little shout out? Hopelessness led to surrender. And then you come and you learn and you hear what God says about what's just happened in your life. And the third step in your journey is confidence. What does that mean? It's not dependent on you hanging on to God because he's hanging on to you. Being sure of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, I know a lot of Christians who have gotten that far and stalled. Their hopelessness, their surrender have marked the journey and now they find themselves in confidence. And they are there by the grace of God. But may I say to you this morning that there's more to the relationship than that? You see, we've experienced God's grace in getting to the place of confidence. But Jesus said he came for more than that. John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and then life to the full. Are you experiencing life to the full today? Or to use the language of Psalm 1 and Malachi 3, are you today living in the blessing of God? Let me say to you that there's a step beyond confidence that has to be triggered. The next steps in this plan, the next step from confidence is faithfulness. What is that about? I've become obedient to God's commands in my life. When I hear what God says to do, I become obedient. I do what he says. And God calls that faithfulness. Friend, hear this. Without faithfulness, there's no blessing. And when God is not blessing, uh, it is to live absent the blessing, which is the curse. What a tragedy to know that the children of God can live without the blessing of God and are experiencing the curse that God did not want for them and is prepared to deliver the blessing as soon as we deliver our faithfulness. When we get clear what God wants, we'll do it. And you know, when it comes to the matter of our money, faithfulness with regard to what God has directed opens the door to the next step because beyond faithfulness, I become generous. What is that about? Generous says, I'm stewarding God's resources, God's way. Why? Because he didn't give me resources to hoard He gave me resources to distribute, to meet needs, because the Lord Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. And we are here as his ambassadors representing Jesus Christ alive in our culture through us. But Jesus is not working through us if our generosity does not demonstrate what Jesus would do if he was here. Faithfulness leads to generous, and generous leads to prosperous. Why? Because our prosperity says, when God puts it in my hands, it's for a purpose. And with my needs having been met, I'm now here to meet the needs of God's kingdom and His people. And when I do that, God sees me as prosperous because my great prosperity is measured in my generosity. And when I'm practicing that, God knows He can trust me. Can he trust you? What was it that it was costing these Jewish people to save the tithe? I'm sure it made perfect sense to them. They probably said, well, you know, times are tough right now. 
we've been in the bondage of uh, occupation and uh, difficult situations. And there's just, there's 10 good reasons why I can't, can't give God the tithe. And someday when I've got it left over, I'll do it. Boy, that's dangerous reasoning because you'll never have it left over. Why? Because you'll always be running on fumes. I would submit that it costs more to save the tithe than it costs to give the tithe. What did the curse look like for these people? Three things. Number one, underproduction. Their wine, their vines were casting their fruit. You know what that means? It means that these perfectly good plants were dropping in the field their fruit and rotting in the field and the yield that they thought they were going to have from their acreage they didn't get because act of God caused their fruit to drop. They were seeing depletion. The pests were devouring their crops. Locusts would sweep through and they were completely beyond the control of these Jewish agriculturalists. And in their difficulty, they failed to connect the dots to recognize that the hardship they were experiencing was directly tied to a spiritual issue. And because of that, they'd experienced resignation. Without experiencing God's blessing, they didn't know what they were missing. If you've, only, if you've only lived without it, you don't know what it is to have it. And these people for generations had been living under the curse. What was God prepared to do? If they would simply step into doing what he had directed them to do? What would it mean for them to be experiencing the blessing of God? The three things that Malachi said, speaking for God Almighty, here's what he said he would do. Number one, he would open the floodgates of heaven. I was intrigued with that statement because the only other place in the scriptures where that term occurs, the floodgates of heaven, is back in Genesis 6, a little historic event called Noah's flood. Remember that story? All of the intent of humankind was only evil all of the time. Universally corrupt except for Noah and his family who find God's favor. And it says that the flood was precipitated by God opening the floodgates of heaven. The term had been used to demonstrate judgment, unrelenting judgment that flowed in an in a, in a uh, dimension that had never been experienced before. Now, it had rained, but it never rained like that. Imagine when it started to rain and people said, Hey, do you have an umbrella? It's starting to rain. It'll pass. And then it didn't stop. Hey, it, it's still raining. Hey, it's really coming down. Hey, it's really coming up. Hey, there goes the car. The floodgates of heaven poured the consequence of judgment on planet earth. That same term triggered the memory in the minds of these Jews when Malachi declares God would open the floodgates of heaven, not for the judgment, but for the blessing. Well, that's a little bit of good luck. I wonder if it's tied to my tithing. Man, it's really, gosh, do you think there's any correlation? Unbelievable. Have you ever experienced the floodgates of heaven opened and pouring out a blessing before? He said, second, it'll deliver an overload that you cannot contain. I have two 
daughters who are in their 30s. They have families of their own, uh, great-grandkids out of that. Not great-grandchildren, but grandchildren who are great. Um, it's crazy. We live in Orange County, but they become urban farmers. It's kind of like Green Acres in the 21st century. One daughter has chickens, six of them. Those little birds push eggs out like there's no tomorrow. The other daughter has a, has a garden in the back. There was a moment this summer where both of them were on overload. Chickens were producing more eggs than her family could eat. The other daughter had tomatoes coming out her ears. Her sons were going up and down the street with bags of tomatoes, meeting neighbors they'd never met before. Hi, we live down the street. Will you take these tomatoes, please? The kids were turning red. Every container in the house had what looked like ketchup in it. They were on overload. It was not going to cost them anything to give away those tomatoes. Their generosity became profound. Why? They couldn't contain it all. In fact, God said the intent was to make these people enviable. Then all the nations will call you blessed. What was God out to do? He was out to see his people become so notable that folks around them would say, tell us what it takes to know your God because we like what he does for you. Friends, our culture would like to know our God if they saw us blessed. This is an unbelievable passage. There are two phrases that I can't get out of my mind. Here here they are. The first one, I, the Lord, do not change. A lot of us hear this and say, oh, but wait a minute, talking about tithing, that's the Old Testament. That's the law. And I'll, I'll hear people push back from that and say the law is no longer applicable. And you're absolutely right. But what's replaced it? Lawlessness? You see, the law is no longer the valid standard. When the Lord Jesus came, his major policy address occurred at the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount... To a crowd who understood and followed the law, who believed that their righteousness based on the law was all God expected, Jesus came and said, let me clarify that. The law said, don't don't murder your brother. But I'm saying to you that if you hate your brother, you're guilty of that statute of the law. Now, the law said, don't be a murderer. Jesus said, the new standard of grace says, don't even hate your brother. Does grace raise the bar or lower the bar? Raised. Jesus said, under the law, it said, you cannot commit adultery. I'm saying to you, if you have thoughts in your mind that are impure with regard to another person, you're guilty under the same statute. Does grace raise the bar or lower the bar? Raised. Friends, uh, I, I get that. Well, Jesus never talked about tithing. Jesus' audience was Jews, not Gentiles. And the audience he addressed were so careful about their tithing that they would count the leaves on their plants in their garden and take the tenth leaf on each plant and devote it to God. He never told anybody to breathe either, but I'm thinking we probably should. You see, he was speaking to a tithing community. He didn't have to amplify that. They were already doing that. He was looking for more. 
Friends, uh, don't play the, the law is no longer in effect game. You lose. I, the Lord, do not change and test me in this and see. I wonder, do you think God could pass your test? Today marks the first Sunday of the last quarter of 2012. We live in quarters, right? This is the fourth quarter of the year. October, November, December are the months before us before we wrap up this year. It's interesting, the latest statistics in American Christianity uh, are available from 2010. Here are the latest stats. Here's the question. How many Americans tithe? The answer, 2% of Catholics, 7% of mainline denominationals, 11% of Charismatics and Pentecostals, 24% of Evangelicals. Now, in the great uh, categorization of church life, We are a church of evangelicals. Now, part of us says, wow, look at that. We're winning against the other guys. May I remind you that 24% tithing means that we've got 76% who are losers. Because God said that to withhold what we know he expects places us outside the territory of his blessing Has this great series on marriage been of value to you so far? Have you found yourself putting into practice some of the principles that you've walked out of here with that you didn't have when you walked in? Has it begun immediately to make an impact in the way you're experiencing life? I trust it has. Here's the question I'm going to be asking you this morning. With your partners, if you're married, your spouse and God. If you're not married today, you still have a partner. He is in heaven. I wonder... Is today a day that you can walk out and put a principle into practice with your partner or partners because of today? Here's the question for you. Would you be willing to put God to the test in the fourth quarter of 2012? How do you do that? To commit today and say, God, here's your 90-day challenge. I'm going to commit 10% of the gross that you bring into my life between now and the end of the year, the tithe. God, I'm going to see what happens if I do it your way. This is an an amazing uh, experience when it becomes personal. Because you've already been through hopelessness and surrender and confidence. In this area of your life has faithfulness Come to live in your life experience with God. Let me say to you, you don't experience God's blessing in your salvation. You experience His grace. Grace is not earned. Blessing is. God gives it without expectation when it's salvation. But in the life of the believer, the blessing of God presumes the obedience of the child of God. If you're, if you're not faithful to God, you're separated from Him, according to His Word. And He says, return to me and I'll return to you. If God's present, He's blessing. If He isn't, you're living under the curse. You may just not use that terminology. Can He be trusted? 
Martin Luther said there are three conversions necessary, and it hasn't changed in 500 years. Luther said, first you have to convert your mind. You have to believe the right thing. Then you have to convert the heart. You have to give up something. And then he said the third and sometimes most difficult conversion is the conversion of the purse. I'm so delighted that this is a church that believes that the conversion moments um, are worthy of celebration. Isn't it fun when someone hears the gospel and decides that it's time to trade in the ticket that they bought with their works, the, the coach ticket to hell. They bring it and they trade it for that first class ticket to heaven bought by the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Is that a good trade? Trading your coach ticket for the first class ticket? Is that a good thing? Boy, I'm so delighted when we do that. We don't say bow your head, close your eyes, and uh, nobody looking around. We don't want to see the people who are smart enough to join us on the trip to heaven. No, this is a church where we celebrate the inclusion of more people. Well, this morning, I'll just tell you how we're going to close. I want to pray for you if you're willing to take God up on his challenge to test him. Now, there are two groups of people that I want to pray for. One, you may have walked in the door this morning saying, uh, you've just confirmed in the last 40 minutes what I believed when I came. We've been giving at that level for years. God is faithful. We are examples of his blessing in our lives. Can't explain it, but we celebrate it. A second group that would be responding this morning would a group that says, I wasn't tithing when I came in. But on the way out the door, I am for the next 90 days. I've tried everything else. I'll try this. And God says, nothing else you try will work as this can. Can you begin at the foundation level? Can you take God at his word? If you're willing this morning to say either I came in a tither and I'm going out just as committed... Or this morning, if you say, I wasn't that when I came, but I am for the next 90 days, we're going to see what God does. We're not going to ask you to come down front, but I am going to ask you to stand up so I can pray for you. And I'm thankful if you're sitting down and just saying, I'm not going to make that commitment this morning because Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, better not to make the vow than having made the vow to break it. So I respect your honesty if you don't stand. But I want to celebrate the people who are courageous enough to say, I want to see what God can do. And I want to bless you as you do that and pray for you. Would you stand up and let me just see if you'd like the blessing of God in the next 90 days. Tithing when you came or you're going to be tithing as you leave. Thank you, God, as we pray this morning, ending our time together. We are alive people speaking to a live God who is no less powerful in the 21st century as you were 2,400 years ago. Father, we live preoccupied with money. We're constantly under the onus of deficiency in a culture that is constrained and conflicted. And there's nothing enviable about our lives when we're in that condition. But thanks be to God who graciously offers us your blessing when we simply will do what you've asked us to do your way. Now, God, before you are men and women who are either examples of that lived out or are prepared to test you.
and see if you can be trusted. I know you can be. Sherry and I have known your blessing because we've simply taken you at your word and done it your way. I pray that experience for these people this morning, that in the next 90 days, things that they cannot explain will follow their obedience and that you will be proven to be great and powerful and gracious and trustworthy in being who you claimed you would be in response to their obedience. Father, may their blessing trigger their generosity and may the envy of the people around them raise the desire to know about a God who cares, who wants to be a part of our lives day by day, moment by moment in the reality of this experience. I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.